All right, friends, we are now ready to release this episode. We've spent hours and hours working on this dialogue and trying to get it as best as we can. This is another interview we recorded in the prime of the lockdown in 2020 from COVID-19. Hope you're all staying safe out there. Wear your mask and do the things. Let's do our part to see the end of this stuff so we can get back to some, you know, good audio. Listening to the Creator Burn podcast. You are listening to the Creator Burn podcast. I mean, you need to like be living and breathing this stuff, or else if you're not, and it's not right there, then eh, you know. If we hire you, you're going to be manning a machine gun on the front lines. You know, you need to be somebody who can have that humble nature, who wants to listen, who wants to learn, who wants to spend time outside of our shop learning more. We are, are fortunate to be able to get up every day and do what we do and make a living at it. I feel like we're fortunate. This is Chad. This is Davis. And I'm here too. And I'm just going to sit here and stare at it. Say recording. Make sure it works. Recording. <laughs> recording. What is up, recording. Creator Burn community? Recording. Welcome to take two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I lost the first one. It was gold. Oh it will never be. It will never enter the annals of history <laughs> into the Creator Burn podcast history. I'm so sorry. The annals of history? Nope. Nope. That's not. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Deep in the annals of history. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just a history of type one personalities. Annals. <laughs> I mean, I guess it kind of works because we're talking to, you know, two history buff guys uh, on our podcast that we would now have one that was lost to history is, you know, deliciously ironic. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're trying to preserve history. We're trying to erase just, as much of it as we can. Yeah. Let's just lose that. Let's just let's start again. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Rolling around, new history coming at you Good right morning. now, live, live history. And from the past comes the present. All right. <laughs> Which brings us to right now. What things do you guys do to keep yourself from being distracted? I constantly look at my phone. No way. Oh, to not be distracted. Dang it. It's going to happen again. No, it'd be just kind of don't split your focus too much. Because sometimes when we're like running up against that problem of like working on too many things at one time, mm-hmm. multitasking isn't necessarily like efficient. <laughs> Anytime I see anyone multitask, you're usually like not completing something 100% or like not able to give something 100% of your focus. If you are working on like multiple projects, taking the time to really like work on one thing at a time rather than like, oh, okay, I'm going to spend this day literally working like three different projects. Well, you're probably not doing each of those like as well as you could be. Set time like a million times. <laughs> <laughs> I think too, like I, I kind of think back our podcast with Prisca, you know, being with a writer and just being like, you know, what? I'm going to sit down and write for 30 minutes and see where it goes. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's the only thing I have to do. So I have to write for 30 minutes. If I end up writing for two hours, great. If I write for 30 minutes and then I need to move on to something else or need to move to something different, then, you know, there's something to pushing through parts. And then I think also realizing that you're going to get more done if you're in the mode to do it or in the position to do it and get your right headspace to do it and not just wasting time because you know you're going to be distracted with something else. If you're going to be distracted because you're thinking about all of these emails, well, then maybe you need to go take care of the emails and not try to work while you're being distracted by the emails. 
Yeah. And then once you have them done, like if you've got emails and they're done and you've, you're ready to do it, then it's like, get the emails freaking out of the way and don't take any new ones and now focus on the thing you need to focus on and don't take new emails. <laughs> yeah. Um, having surgery, we get an email and we're like, hey, sorry, I'm in the ER. I'll get back with you. It's giving me like 30 minutes, you know? <laughs> There's something about being able to disconnect. I'm balancing a lot of projects that are all kind of somewhat demanding. We all are. And it's just a matter of trying to figure out what do I work on now. I read a book called The Time Blocking Method and it's all about taking a certain hour or however long you feel like you can hold your focus and shutting everything off and just set a timer and say for this next 45 minutes, I'm going to only work on this. And then at the end of that 45 minutes, you can reward yourself and you can go take a walk or do whatever that's, that's jelly good. beans. I pick jelly beans. Oh, I like, <laughs> I like jelly beans. So I didn't know if we were supposed to chime in with our reward method. <laughs> that would be good. Do you reward yourself, Davis? Uh, every day. Oh my God. <laughs> It's good. a good hard smack in the face, and he says, "Good boy, yeah, a good job, smack." People get weird when I do it in the store. Reach for the Oreos, and I go, "No, I'm like, good job." Yeah, you did it, you son of a gun, you did it. Time blockers sounds like a an adventure team. I think it might be time chunking, but that also sounds like a drunk. <laughs> what up, you guys? What is time change? Or it's like a medicine thing. It's like, are you having problems with time in your life? This new medicine will block the time. These time blockers will block them out of your system, and they will just go pass on through, so you don't have to worry about all this time clogging up your system. <laughs> and then you chunk it together. Time cloggers. <laughs> time cloggers. Uh, so, I think that's a Dutch timing system. <laughs> Clogging? Time cloggers. <laughs> time cloggers. That sounds like a really fancy show I believe I saw one time at Silver Dollar City in Branson. It's pretty special. By the way, I'm still recording. Still recording. Still recording. Oh, yep. <laughs> History has been written today. Oh, I got to hop off in a second. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we're going to be talking with some great filmmakers today all about that whole time issue. So stay tuned and we'll be right back with our guest. Time blockers, you get caught in the rip. Time blockers. Time blockers. That was totally crossfire, wasn't it? I know, it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Do you remember that, CJ? Oh, yeah. Time crossers? Time crossfire. No, no, crossfire. Crossfire. It was a... It was a it's a game. It was, right? a, it was almost like Hungry Hungry Hippo, except you shot things across a little... I think they called it the arena. Yeah. And, like, you shot these little discs. And, and you tried spin? So you shot these marbles to try to... Oh. You had a, a disc, and they had a disc, and you tried to shoot it to the other side by shooting these little BBs. <laughs> that was the thing, is it was like... It was like the most crazy epic <laughs> crossfire crossfire to the super 90s crossfire by milton bradley <laughs> or mattel or whoever it was <laughs> distracted wide awake films began with war stories captured the drama of sweeping events presenting historic conflicts with fresh substance for new viewers they fostered a respect for truth-seeking and a desire to honor those who cannot speak for themselves. Wide Awake Films is committed to telling true historic stories the way they happened. Recently, they won an Emmy for their film covering the Battle of Franklin and the fall of the Western Confederate Army, which covers the controversial evidence of this defeat being driven by drug addiction. 
With this incredible attention to detail, they apply this practice to all different kinds of subject matter, recognizing the common need for people to spread powerful and clear messages. They've told stories of small organizations and Fortune 500 companies alike, earning many awards in the process, but always staying committed to their founding roots. Wide Awake has stayed nimble with a core staff of experts who can shepherd most any project to completion, and an expandable crew to bolster larger productions when necessary. Please welcome with me two of Kansas City's true pioneers of communicative storytelling, co-owners and operators of Wide Awake Films, Ed Lidecker and Shane Seeley. So we're sitting here with Ed Lidecker and Shane Seeley. You guys started it, right? Yeah, we did back in the day, man. 1999, I kind of got it going in my you know basement kind of situation. And then Ed ended up joining me. He and I had always talked about it for a long time. Joined in me in 2001 on April Fool's Day. Yeah, it was 2002. Right April Fool's Day is the most significant part. Absolutely. <laughs> he said, you want to join my business? And you were like, sure. And he was like, huh. April Fools. <laughs> and then I think we went day drinking that day, and uh, it was a good afternoon. It was a good afternoon. <laughs> We've known each other. I think next year's our 30th year in this shame. Yeah, man. You know, we had worked wow. together prior to that, and we had discussed opening it before Shane went to yeah. Denver. And it was just an unusual time at the company we were, I was working at where Shane had left a couple of years earlier. And it just didn't feel like it was the right time. But when he came back and all of a sudden we realized, let's just do this. We were tired of working for other people and <laughs> the decisions that we felt we could make would have been uh, you know, a lot more beneficial to what we were trying to accomplish, I think. And I brought back the first Final Cut Pro uncompressed suite in uh, the market, which everyone was on Avid at the time. No, literally no one had it. And so (laughs) I cobbled this thing together with my techie friends from Denver and we had a non-leader edit suite that cost like 30K and we were kicking out broadcast quality stuff with it. So that was a game changer. And then Ed joining and then we ran it out of my attic here in Liberty where I'm at now. Then Ed was able to come in and we bought a bunch of pre's like, dude, we need some cameras. I'm like, yeah. And so we bought a bunch (laughs) of camera gear and then we just started doing what we love to do, which is production. So Ed and I love production. And and I was our first Uber having to learn crappy editor for a long time. I I got us by, (laughs) but thank God we got who we got now. (laughs) But uh, I edited for a while and I'm I'm more a production guy. And then Ed likes, we love production. What was the initial drive of you guys putting the company together of where your focus was going to be at? Or did you have an idea? You were just kind of throwing out production ideas? Or was there kind of an initial goal for you guys? I always wanted it. I was the kind of the history nerd. And then I got Ed hooked on it. And he got to becoming (laughs) it when we were at Video Post, which is an interesting story. I mean, Ed and I worked at this 35 person production company. It was on the plaza. That was back in the day where to edit, it was six fifty an hour because the oh, wow. equipment to, to yeah. let you edit was like $2.5 million. And then I would be billing, the agency would be billing. I mean, literally, yeah. we were rolling $1,000 an hour to two shots together and make it dissolve and throw some supers on, you know, stuff you yeah. can do with the phone in like three seconds. We were the first company in the United States to put digital in. Did a lot of really amazing things. We're always on the cutting edge of technology. I've been shooting on HD like since 1992 because of these guys, you know. So it was cool, but it just got to be too much, I think. I think that business model had ended and they didn't know it yet was one thing. But it was a cool company for a while. A lot of great people are still in this market and it created a lot of companies. We had some incredible staff there, you know. We had some amazing people that 
we had worked with for a number of years. And, you know, it was a different world. It was only the higher end corporate clients were, were spending that kind of money. Everything was so expensive. When I first got involved in it and I heard that you were able to bill for $600 an hour in an edit suite, I, I'd never heard of that before. That seemed like that's more than a, a physician makes. It demanded that at the time. She had millions of dollars worth of equipment back in those days because we were in that transition period where, you know, we were working with one inch tape, we're three quarters, Betamax, VHS tapes, everything. And a lot of the revenue, I believe, was made off of replication or duplication at that time. And we produced these high-end films. And, and most of them were, you know, for major corporations like Pennzoil or Jiffy Lube or the Coffin Foundation, Mary Merrill Dow, major players in the Kansas City area were the ones that really could afford that type of technology and that type of communication. But you know, it led into the world that Shane and I always loved, which was the history. And, you know, I got hooked on it. Like, you know, Shane got me into it. I'm not the detailed guy that he is. But, you know, I've been very fortunate to be on some amazing film shoots with Credible, both, you know, Chad and CJ. And, you know, we've done some amazing things over the years. And history, for some reason, always grabbed our heart. Not that we don't love the corporate world. Not that it doesn't pay our bills. But... You know, we're very selective in the types of companies that we work with today. They bring us great joy and people appreciate, you know, high quality communication pieces. And so our world's changed a lot, you know, when the technology, the cameras got cheaper. We, Shane and I made a definite decision to step up and going into the Airy world or the Viper Film Street world. It was things or equipment that a lot of people were not using in corporate video. So we were able to show them amazing quality. And mm-hmm. I think that's what helped us grow uh, to where we are today. And uh, But it, it has changed a lot. And I think a lot of the people that stepped back ended up, you know, when that many years ago, there was 100, 100 plus video companies in Kansas City. And I, I, I don't even know how many there are today. All the big people have left. Um, it's it's very challenging though, and uh, but it's you know pretty damn exciting too. Yeah, do you think that it's actually been a lot easier now with the technology changes and everything to go on like location and shoot? Because when you're thinking of like dealing with history, you know, you're dealing with on location, like outside, and you're dragging all this clunky, huge, you know, camera equipment and everything. And with what you've kind of got to work with now, everything is a lot more condensed. I would say it, was, it would almost be easier to do the kind of stuff that you're wanting to do in a different way. You know. All this equipment, this shit's like cheating, man. I mean, it's just, you know, it's light. There's no cable onto the light. Uh, it's yeah. light. It's not super heavy. I mean, that's why all of us are like, Bleh. you know, I mean, the cameras are lighter. Everything's lighter. But yeah, but it's still down to what I like about it. It's this iPhone, which is ancient and iPhone 8, it has a better camera in it than we had in like yeah. maybe even the early aughts. So it's just, you know, it's gotten down to a story craft. Everyone's kind of got the same tools now. You need to be putting out stuff that is as compelling as anything they're seeing on television or Netflix or Snapchat or TikTok or wherever their video is, you know, it's got to hook them. So I don't know. I thought it's been kind of liberating in that sense. But as far as it being easier for history, absolutely. It's nuts what we're able to do out there. And these cameras are so friggin' fast, man. We can shoot at night with very little light. I mean, what we used to need like a three-ton grip truck for, you know, we can like slam back to somebody's Subaru, get the same job accomplished. 
So it's been interesting in that respect. It's been tough on people that are gaffer scripts and you know have specialized in that. And we still use them on big stuff though. If if we need it, like we got something coming up that we're going to be lighting some big ass shots at night and in the West Bottoms, and we're going to need some light to do that. So, but you know, but if those opportunities are aren't as prevalent in what our project. And that's been the upside, I think, is being nimble, maybe getting more shot. The downside is uh, those lack of jobs. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. You guys have been even making it a little more interactive as far as like doing the 360 shoots, which I know all three of us have kind of been a part of, which has been really cool. You know, I wasn't a huge history buff growing up. For me, it was I like, unless I was a part of something, it was hard for me to really get the facts and stay interested. And now I think with like the way you guys are kind of doing your 360 stuff and really making things a little more interactive, it's actually probably helped a lot of like, I would say the youth as well as people, even my age, getting interested again about the history and about things going on, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of the, so the the stuff that we do for the organization. They're called the American Battlefields Trust and, you know, try to get a younger generation interested in history and, you know, try to kind of plant a flag in the middle of what they see on game show or, you know, their video games or, or what they've seen there. But, and it's been pretty successful. I mean, 900,000 views on YouTube isn't too bad. And um, that's that VR piece, but I don't know. What's, what's YouTube? Ahead, no, I'm just uh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Forever, we're like Vimeo, baby. But if we're going back to 360, that was 360 VR production is like, woo, it's like going back to film school, buddy. And I CJ knows it from the audio <laughs> side because he did all the audio on it. But on the production side, it's like you're just doing geometry 24-7. And I sucked at geometry. So. <laughs> but we like to make ours more complicated because we throw in explosions and gunfire and all kinds of yeah. Flying a VR camera on a cable, like, duh. I mean, oh, yeah, we got to paint that out. <laughs> Those shots look cool, though. Yeah. That was like one of the craziest shoots I've been on, I think. When you go 360, it's like everything is going to be se- – like, you're going to see everything, you know? So you, so I've got, like, little videos of me, like, hunkered down in the bunker. Michael, the DP's running through with a big smoke bomb, you know, like, smoke it up! He's smoking it through, you know, all of a sudden these mortars start going off, and, and I've got my gear here, and it's, like, just getting pounded with dirt, just like I'm <laughs> one of the dudes, you know, reenacting. Those are the shoots that you'll remember forever and be able to tell the story is almost as good as the project itself and the post side. I mean, post was a whole nother, I can't imagine directing or how many reenactors did you have on that shoot? I think we had close to 30. Yeah. I mean, we're used to doing that, but you know, what's interesting is all the good comments on YouTube, just about a video, you know, you usually have some crazy comments on YouTube. Mm-hmm. There's not many and about every fourth one compliments the audio. So mm-hmm. uh, that's a good testament <laughs> to what CJ did. The clients, when we were done, Ed and I've always believed is our motto with history is when in doubt, smoke it out. Because you can take five guys and put them in a shroud of smoke and use audio to make them seem like they're part of it. 10,000, man. And, and that's a big mm-hmm. secret of what we do with history. It's our audio work. It's like why our stuff pops so much because audio is everything. You could put a um, you know, shot of a dog turd up and people, with good audio, people would watch it. You know, <laughs> so um, that's my theory and I think I'm right. But um, after that shoot, the clients were like, no, too much smoke. There's too much smoke. Well, I got into being a civil war nerd in 1985. 86. I started, I was always into the Civil War as a kid, and I finally found a Civil War reenacting group where I grew up in Southwest Kansas. They were in Wichita. I went to the 125th series of reenactments. I attended many of them, one of them being Gettysburg, where there are 20 
thousand reenactors firing at each other. It was a, probably one of the biggest events on the planet. And when you get 25,000 black powder muskets firing, that's the smokiest world ever. And sometimes it will, that sulfur in the smoke will actually draw in clouds and create rain. And that's how much sulfur is in the air. And so I've wow. at least experienced that. So I went back and forth with them on the smoke thing. And I'm like, I'm telling you, you know, oh, and here's 25 <laughs> accounts I've read. So, but the smoke is our big thing. While I'm out directing, Ed is usually like helping with the smoke, getting that thing to run. And, you know, Ed, Ed and I work great. Ed is, uh, produces all this stuff. I'm on the front lines maybe trying to get stuff done. And that's, the, I think, the other secret to this history stuff is we've just done it so much. We kind of just let each other do their thing. And, I, you know, and I'm just lucky that I have Ed with me to, like, he just knows how to handle things. And, and he's an amazing communicator. And he loves this stuff. And, so, and yeah. we just are a good team. You know, we always have been. We've been doing it, history stuff, since 1991 when we shot our first reenactment in Wilson's Creek, Missouri. One of the things I think that's the most important and the success that Shane and I have had has been because of the guys and the gals, the reenactors who, you know, give their heart and soul to this type of stuff. And when you have an opportunity to be on a shoot with, you know, anywhere from 10 people to, you know, 200 people, and you put that many people in a room that care that much about something, we've been really, really lucky with guys like Greg Higginbotham and guys like Dan Hadley and, and Robbie Moppin and Mike Bubb and, and some of our guys, Aaron Racine. You know, a lot of these guys are professional guys that are everything from attorneys to doctors to whatever. Shane and I have developed this reputation that we're pretty chilled on our shoots. We let these guys have a lot of fun because, shit, they're not making any money. And it's because of the passion of telling a story that is in a way that captures people like, you know, kind of the thing you said, Davis, about it. You know, I mean, I, I hated history in high school. I wanted to be outdoors. And, but then I've touched it in a different way that I'm not the researcher that Shane is or knows every fine detail. But I look at the camaraderie and the way that you can put people together, no matter where you are and how difficult it is, what budget you have that you're all thriving to produce something that's, you know, really high caliber. And hopefully on the back end, we'll have great viewers and that will make a difference in the world, you know. And I think people can't forget what these soldiers did and not only Civil War, but Revolutionary War and everything. I have a feeling that a lot of the youth in America today are not having an opportunity to study it because the books are boring for them. They need something visually and that's what we're trying to do. And, you know, the bigger budgets we get, the more people we'll reach. Yeah. When we were working on Mount Vernon, which is, you know, the George Washington stuff, it's like you can really see the passion in those guys that they have for it. I mean, I remember mm. walking around and like, you know, they know how many seams they would have used, you know, sewing up a jacket. If the buttons look right, they want it to look as authentic as possible, too, and all kind of care about that, you know, from the top down, which is great that you guys bring in, you know, those people that care about that and have as much passion for that. If you brought in somebody who doesn't have a passion for that, it's like, ah, who's going to notice whether this thing has three buttons or two buttons? Who cares? The guys that are there with us go, no, 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 Henry Knox wore that jacket and he would have had two buttons because he's an officer, so it wouldn't have been a three jacket. <laughs> right. One of the problems I had is I say guys all the time mm -hmm. as part of my like colloquial talk of like, hey guys, hey guys. And I know that uh, Shane and I can't remember who else was there that was helping me of like, 
you can't say guys. You got to say, you know, boys or lads or <laughs> something. Because I was trying to just yell at people like, hey, guys, come this way. And it's like, well, that's not what they would have said, you know, back then. The 360 video is on YouTube, right? And how can they find that video? You can go to YouTube and type in uh, American Battlefields Trust. And they have a channel. There's basically uh, four parts of the VR piece, but I would look at the one that's like 12 minutes long. It's the VR Civil War Experience Project, and, um, and that's on there. You can also go over to Wide Awake's Facebook page, and we have a behind-the-scenes shot that Ed filmed with his iPhone that is pretty cool. Of You see us, kind of a wide shot of a big trench that we dug, and you see him filming. We just posted that, I think, last week, and, and that's, that's pretty interesting. I know that the authenticity of what we did in post too was very specific just for, you know, the sounds we had to have, you know, the sounds that would be there. I couldn't just put in like a machine gun. You know, I was like, what kind of machine gun would they be? You know, is and there that's any- like nails going down a chalkboard when you ask that question to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're like, going to have to go back out. I'm coming over. But no, you're right. We, you know, and back to Chad's point, you know what? I always say this. I came from the reenacting community. And then there was this whole hardcore movement that was uh, in civil war of like, everything we have is museum quality, man. We're going to have a key and a credit card. That's it. That's not 19th century on your body. And we're going to go live in the rain and march 18 miles and experience what they did. And there, there was some books written about that. And, you know, there's some stuff out there, but I kind of got into that and it was like almost being brainwashed into like absolutely doing it right. And what it has is just allowed Ed and I to be able to like make phone calls and know the scratch golfers of any living history era. I mean, the best guys. And then all of a sudden you get these guys on your sets and there's so much friggin' knowledge. You could just like ask a question and like, oh yeah, this guy's like the leading, leading, leading guy or whatever. I mean, it's amazing how smart some of the guys are on set and how much knowledge is there about this minutia that uh, may seem like it's not important, but I think it's nice to work within the confines of that and still tell an engaging story, which you look at Saving Private Ryan, they did that. I mean, everything was uber authentic on that. And I think even if people don't know what they're looking at, they know if it's cheesy, man. And there's so much cheese out there. I mean, there's a ton of it. So, and and shooting history is hard to do, but find the best people that know this stuff and listen to them, you know? I think even as an actor, you know, you get parts where you're like, all right, I'm playing a husband or a lawyer or, uh, you know, whatever. I'm playing all the things that I know in my in my time period. There's something about playing a part of history that you were never a part of. It's just very engaging even for an actor to want to do. Like that's something that most actors, when you want them to play something from like way back when, they just get into it. They want to be a part of that because it's something they've never experienced it's just got a whole different life to it. There's something about that too, of just like seeing some of these people get into it. And I could totally see the psychology of it. It's a vicarious living. I mean, even like bringing different people that are, you know, good actors. And when they get around these guys, they be, the reenactors accept the actors for who they are. And I think they, it gives the actor the experience that these guys want to share with you and see if they can hook you on it. Because when they come to a shoot, even though they're actors technically, they're also the kind of people that help us load gear and do things because, you know, these are limited budgets, most of the ones we work on. And it's just exciting to see the actors become part of the reenactors' lives and they share that together and they both have mutual respect. And I think that's the beauty of getting these people together so that we're all there for the same reason. I'll say there was on a project, you had an actor 
playing somebody and you had a reenactor playing somebody. It's a lot of shooting with cold weather, shooting stuff like that. And, you know, it's like talking about, you know, having problems with this particular actor not being in it. I got a small piece of the story, but it's cold. It's not super fun. We're out on this farm in the middle of nowhere. And then you have the reenactor playing the same part and was doing like a lot of some other the, you know, horse riding and stuff like that that the actor couldn't do. But then, you know, he kind of steps in and starts doing all this other stuff because it's like he's used to playing that part all the time. He just lives it and wants to be there and be like, you know what? I'm this guy. I'm here. That's what I do all the time. He's almost embodying the character as an actor more than even the actor was because it's like he's taking on that idea of like, I am this person in this time. It's like those people who probably don't think of like maybe reenactors actors a lot of times as like being actors or something like that. It's like they're self-immersing themselves as I'm this person. I just thought that was interesting with that example of being in that situation on that particular project and seeing someone as like a reenactor being able to kind of really own it and kind of almost take it over a little bit. <laughs> it was kind of like akin to like for a director, like, you know, throwing, throwing a guy in a red jumpsuit in the middle of a bull arena. But, you know, it went yeah. pretty good. You know, when <laughs> the producers yeah. were dealing with it a little more than me, but everybody got satisfied, I guess. So, uh, but yeah, the, the yeah. main actor that we had playing him is actually a nuclear physicist and he plays uh, <laughs> and he can ride like nobody's business, uh -huh. has trained himself like the way Washington did. And there's a certain type of horse riding skill that Washington used to do and will literally have a book and ride with a book in his hands to train himself in the same methodology. So wow. these guys like yeah. jump off the cliff, right? They deep dive <laughs> into the stuff and, yeah. and it's just so special. And he had, he had two horses for a while that looked like yeah. two of the horses that he had or right. was kind of known to have just so that when he did like these live reenactment stuff, he was literally like riding what would have looked like Washington's horses. <laughs> and Washington historically, like when he bought a carriage, it was like the Lamborghini of carriages and his horses oh, yeah. were like top dollar. So, I mean, I have yeah. no idea what uh, John spent on the horse that he had. You know, so. I know the, we're talking about the purity of the history and the, the storytelling that you guys are up to, is that something that kind of drives you? Like when you wake up, is that something that you feel is the reward of preserving that history? Or what would be the thing that kind of drives you the most, do you think? That's a hard question. Go ahead, Ed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what drives me is that I don't have to sit in a cubicle at a big corporation every day from eight to five. You know, everything we do is really challenging. And I think the beauty of it is, is every project we work on is different. Most of our clients are pretty knowledgeable. We're working for Mount Vernon, and they have the world's expert on George Washington employed there. And, you know, when you work around people like that and you look over and you're at the end of the scene or whatever, you see a smile and you see that we connected with the level that he was looking at. It's a nice feeling at the end of the day when all the actors are exhausted. They've done something they've probably never done before. But it's like Chad mentioned, you know, it's something you'll never forget. Those special films and the times that Shane and I have had both, you know, extremely challenging everything from tornadoes to producing a creative content in the in the world that you don't know what you're going into until you arrive or like let's build a 
let's build a fort on the back of a farm in Virginia. And we get there and we've got 12 inches of ice in a trench and we have to bring in backhoes and literally rebuild uh, sets that we thought would work. And until we got there, we, we looked at the amount of work we had to do to pull that off. 12 inches of water yeah. in the fort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, pumping water out of there, trying to get locals to be on our, you know, they don't even know who we are until we arrive and, you know, to build respect with those people very quickly and mm-hmm. to take care of challenges and problems. But the real creative part of it comes out with the people that you have on the set and the resources that you have. And you do something that everybody is awed by by the time you leave at the end of the day. And when you see them in the premiere and you look at people that have been through this with this fun memories, great performances, and then to see the audience smile and light up and tell us what a great job we did. It was all worth it. Everything was worth it at that point. More than the money, more than anything. We're not Ken Burns. We'd love to make the kind of money he makes, but we do it more out of, it's a special business we're in. You know, we have decided in our lives that we'll never be rich. We want to live comfortable. We want those around us to hopefully make the kind of money down the road that we hope we can get those kind of budgets and, and really show what we can do. And we're pretty amazed at the level of creativity that our small staff can pull off for limited budgets. And it's worked well for us. You know, we do a lot more than history. I've always felt like, uh, well, we had to. History wasn't always paying the bills. But, you know, that by taking the same skills and stuff that we apply to history and applying them to corporate projects and commercial projects and trying to make them just as interesting and good as anything we try to do is has it worked well for us. So, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we look for. But in regards to history, I think the creative burn with with me is, you know how you watch like old historical shows, some of them from like the 70s and 80s. And right when you watch it, you're like, oh, this was made in the 80s. I don't yeah, want to, yeah. I don't want to make that shit, man. And you know, <laughs> I mean, and if you, if you adhere to the history and still tell a good story, and you may have some techniques in it that are like, oh yeah, that was common in 2006 or whatever that amongst us nerds. But I, I'd like our stuff to really last because a lot of times these organizations, for example, we did the interpretive film at Wilson's Creek National Battlefield. We did that in 2004 and we want that to last and it still is showing 2020. And I bet, cause we know that that's tough for them to raise the kind of money to do that. Right. And you know, any dollars we get from clients, those are precious. And, and how can we stretch those? How can we spend them wisely? How can they get big return on their investment? And in the history space, it's not making it look like it was done the year it was done. And then that's part of it, you know, from the from that standpoint. But lately, and since we've been, we did a big documentary that won an Emmy on uh, George Caleb Bingham, as called The American Artist recently. It's on our Amazon Prime channel. And, and that really got us into, you know, really kind of trying to go more story craft. So, our entire crew, which is just amazing at Wide Awake, you know, Keith Johnson and all our editors, well, Jeff, you know, I can't name everybody's name, but, you know, Julia, it's just you bring this whole level of story and filter that we apply to everything that we do now. And I'm just like studying story craft. I'm on story grid. I'm working on a book in the morning just to hone my skills. I mean, just doing all this stuff has really helped me and it's helping. I think everybody is getting into it from that perspective. So that's been our big focus lately. And that's what gets me up in the morning. How can we tell these stories 
that need tolls, but tell them in a way that, you know, they're going to work for a long time and they're going to work for everybody because, you know, frankly, if we can't get Gen Z interested, why bother? You know, we can't just keep doing Boomer and Gen X content anymore. We can go, <laughs> you know, we really need to shoot for millennials and below. And that, so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause some of that museum stuff lasts for 20 years. I mean, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it can be 20 years before they ever go, well, we need to update this. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like making a movie, you know? I mean, yeah. you, want it, you want it to last. In light of the current events sparked by the injustice and brutal murder of George Floyd, we would be remiss not to take a moment and let our listeners know where we stand. We stand wholeheartedly with the movement of Black Lives Matter and are committed to do our part, demanding a change. As three white males, we know it's no longer enough to simply be non-racist. But this is a time for educating ourselves and pursuing a better future as anti-racist. We will use our voice to stand along our black family and friends to spread this revolution of compassion, empathy, equality, and love. We must see a change in the system. We strive for a tomorrow that is not simply colorblind, but a system that recognizes and embraces our differences. We understand that it is our own white privilege that has fostered the system whose leaders are motivated to keep us separated. But we will continue to actively repurpose our privilege and distribute our resources to help dismantle the very system we've created. Well, I'm talking about like character affecting you and stuff like that. So I was on the set of one of the Bingham shoots. We we're down by the lake at one point. Oh, yeah. My character was supposed to be smoking a pipe. After I did that, I loved doing that so much. I was like, I'm going to go buy a pipe. <laughs> so I actually, <laughs> I saw so I started smoking pipe. Like I, I don't smoke. I mean, I don't smoke cigarettes or anything like that. Um, but I, there is something. That's so funny. Yeah, there's something super soothing. So now I'm a pipe tobacco smoker. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need you and your pipe because we have some stuff coming up, probably for both you guys. Uh, this stuff on we're doing a documentary on uh, the Wide Awakes, where we got our name for Curiosity Stream, and it was the oh, youth cool. first first political youth movement in the United States, uh, 1860. It lasted eight months, and they got Abraham Lincoln elected to the White House. So I think they uh, helped oh, the country a little bit, uh, and that's where we got our name. They were called the Wide Awakes. I know Davis is probably not the only one that ended up with a bad habit after. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, Moscow. I mean, oh, there it is. <laughs> they started with with day drinking. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the, the company uh, started. We've had a good time. We've really settled down, but everybody who knows Shane and Ed knows yeah. that. Um, yeah, we can burn it at both ends if we need to. But yeah, yeah. I went from beer to moonshine. It was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> So how many people are working with you guys right now on staff there at White We have 11, well, 10 full-time, one part-time who's pretty close to full-time. And then we've got a lot of relationships with contractors and probably 15 people total, people that we have helping us out in other capacities. One of the things I kind of see, especially in the film industry, is this idea of do we hire like an in-house DP or do we hire like an in-house audio guy or what do we do as far as like in-house versus freelance and stuff? And a lot of the companies, I think it almost works in like a three-year cycle to where it's like, they'll be like, okay, we're just going to stop doing like freelancers and we're going to bring on somebody to be on board to shoot all the stuff. And what I notice is I feel like there's a turnover that happens within like a three-year thing to where like when you move from a freelance lifestyle to where like it's pretty high pressure, you got to be on time, you got to show up and do the thing, you know, and then you move into what's more of like maybe a salary-based 
structure, it's easy for people to lose their edge, you know, to where like uh, now it's just a job and it's guaranteed, you know, there's nothing, you know, that type of thing. So I'm wondering, because I know you guys have people that have worked with you since they were kids, just out of high school, you know, and and they've been with you ever since. Like, how do you do that? Creating a culture that they feel they're a part and are happy to be there. It's the same reason I think that Shane and I get up every day to do what we do. We're not doing the same thing every day. And every project we work on is different. And I think that's what has given us the advantage as far as, you know, we have a we, we have some people that have been there, quite a few have been there a number of years. And I think it's the variety of work that we do. And we take the same craftsman approach to every project we work on there's room for them to grow we've got a young guy that came to us uh, originally as an editor now he's doing 3d animation he's designing our whole team can do a lot of different things and i think that's that's how we've kept everybody interested uh, the variety yeah no one's slotted into one role uh, you know we kind of figure it out but everybody who's on full-time has probably spent i don't know a good year or two just working from a contractual standpoint, just to make sure that, you know, they're going to jive. And because Ed and I aren't there, I mean, our post team, those, it's a manage yourself play. You know, we've created that culture and they either kind of uh, make it there or you don't. And, you know, the, everyone who's there has earned their place. But yeah, we're probably the biggest production company in town right now, I think, as far as staff. But we're just trying to explore. We really, really work on TV stuff. We're really kind of going into our space there and finding clients, you know, that we can kind of do our thing for. And that's starting to slowly work. And it's just like anything, you know, when we we do a lot of union work, we're very much into uh, unions. And um, and that took a while to kind of, you know, build trust and build a reputation. And and so we're kind of trying to do that in other areas and hopefully bring back production work into this community. We love Kansas City. Um, There's just some kick-ass crew folks that need more work. You know, we've been shooting a lot of history and just telling clients, hey, we don't need to come out to the East Coast. We can do it here. And we have done that. Sometimes like shooting Revel War, no one around here does Revolutionary War because we weren't around during the Revolutionary War. (laughs) And so uh, there's no real reenacting opportunity there except Fort Osage. It's probably about it, 1800s. So, you know, we have to travel out there and we've got a whole great relationship with awesome people that um, work in on the East Coast too that I think Chad's had the opportunity to meet some of them uh, you know and they really do a lot out there but I don't know we just we care about everybody that works for us and we don't take the word family lightly and and that's how we're gonna create I know you guys that work there too they look at you guys as I don't know if you could call you dads or whatever but it's almost OG. like <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I'm stepping into the grandpa category. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't gonna go there. I know. Oh, Papa is. Okay, here's yeah. a Moscow story. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> I kind of told him a little bit about. There's several stories. Ed, you and I and Michael have spent how many hours and hours driving through the whole state of Missouri, which actually can take up to eight hours to go all the way across Missouri. So we've gotten pretty, you know, gotten pretty close to where you're just like, you do feel that we're going to make something cool, you know, and we're going to tell a story and we're going to print it for the rest of time and whatever, even if it's for, you know, like if we're shooting for John Deere or whatever it was, the stories that we found connecting with those people on those shoots with the families and the things that those are the things that, I mean, you really bring validity to the people that are there, you know, like that family that we shot with in Missouri. Now their kids and their grandkids can go back and watch, you know, this history piece that we did on their family and something that, you know, they'd never be able to do on their own, you know, as far as the scale of what you guys are doing. 
anytime we shot together, it was always about the story. I shot with you guys a ton last year. Or I think it was last year until I exited the uh, location stuff. <laughs> you know, that's, that's interesting you're saying that, CJ, because I just, I get a text that we stay in a very close connection with Doug Scott and his family down in Sykeston. And, you know, we first went down there. I mean, the only, all, all they knew were they were contacted by some corporate people of the food chain at John Deere. And he didn't really know what, what we were doing down there. And when we get there, and, and I think it's because of people like you, CJ, and Michael Palm, and Shane, and everybody that works together, when we go into a situation, we respect those people. And, you know, th this farmer and his family are amazing people. And he opened up his heart to us, opened up his operations, which... For any kind of a business owner or a farmer, you're a little leery about showing everybody what's in your toolbox because you you know you're either going to lose business or you're going to be looked upon as a fool. And when we go in and and enjoy the relationship we have with these people, when we come back, they have the same passion that we do. They they're so respectful that they're confident we're going to show their best side. And to show this, show them in a respectful way. And I think that was the beauty and the success in that series. And we're now doing it again with a Larry Williams family up in Calgary, Canada. Equally an interesting family. Wonderful people. Their crews are awesome. And we feel pretty fortunate to be able to get involved in a person's life and know their thoughts. And we have great friends now through this series that we're doing. And it's going to continue on when the virus ends. We'll move on to hopefully next year's family and have an opportunity to explore how these farmers operate. And the rest of America needs to know what kind of challenges these people have. If we could kind of go back to kind of the employee type mindset, I guess, if there were a couple of traits that you look for, like say you've got a kid that's mm -hmm. just getting out of school or whatever, what do you think is the top priority as far as we're talking about some people skills? What would you mm. see as really important? You know, I told this story and I might come across a little bit like a jerk with it, but it's some of it rings true. I had a buddy of mine. He's a cool guy. He's like a computer dude that I work out with, but he's like in a punk band, right? And he comes <laughs> up to me. He's like, hey, I got this kid and he's really wanting to get into video. And I'm like, that's cool. I go, is he, you know, working with editing or shooting? He's like, not yet. He just really, really wants to get into it. You think you can talk to him? And I go, well, what if my kid just decided to play the friggin' guitar tomorrow? Can you want to spend an hour with him? You know, <laughs> I mean, it's like, I don't know. I want that, but that ought to be the first thing. I mean, you need to like be living and breathing this stuff or else if you're not, and it's not right there, then, eh, you know, that'd be the first thing. And then I think, in the film industry, there's a stereotype that we're all a bunch of assholes, man. And you hear it, oh, you're wanting to do what? No, you know. And we try to be the antithesis of that everywhere we go. This isn't about us. It isn't about what we're doing. We compromise. Our stuff isn't more important than your life. Or, you know, that's how I am with safety on our sets. And, and our creative ideas can be, to me, I like that. To me, you know, and Ed will agree. The production is like, we're going to war and we're going to solve problems. We got a plan, but it'll probably be thrown out the window and we're just going to figure it out. That's what excites me about it. But, but really, I think that's it. And I think somebody who can have that humble nature, who wants to listen, who wants to learn, who wants to spend time outside of our shop, learning more, great. Because if we hire you, you're going to be manning a machine gun on the front lines. You know, you need to be there to <laughs> jump in and, and do that. So that's it. And I think, you know, obviously, Ed and I, were the kind of 
guys who grew up in that generation where we show up on time. We don't have to stand around with our thumb up our butts, you know, find something to do. If, you know, our thing is like, hey, if you can't find something to do in our sets, you aren't looking hard enough. Somebody's mom said that once and I thought it was good. And, you know, we are, are fortunate to be able to get up every day and do what we do and make a living at it in Kansas City. I feel like we're fortunate, you know, and I mean, that mean we haven't worked hard, but I think we've had you know, a lot of great people. We have a great staff here that makes it happen. And I just kind of try to approach every day like that and, and hopefully find some people that, that want to do that. But full-time production jobs in a medium market like Kansas City are hard to come by. We get a bunch of resumes every day and it's like, man, we haven't hired somebody full-time in like, I don't know, three years, you know, is that right, Ed? You know, it's not like a massive growth industry when, you know, everyone's got an iPhone 11, you know, and hey, I'll just hire somebody for a thousand bucks to do the video. And oh, you know, I don't know. So that's been kind of challenging, but I'm trying to find, you know, the right people. I hope I've answered your question, CJ. What is the burn inside? The burn inside that continuously drives us to pursue, to pursue our creative endeavors. Sound designers CJ Drummiller and filmmakers Chad Crenshaw and Davis D. Rock invite artists and creators alike to explore those deep drives in the Creator Burn Podcast. The burn begins June 1st. How closely are you guys developing the story initially, or are a lot of clients kind of bringing you generally like the idea of the thing or are they just kind of like hey we want to do this experience to help us tell a story i mean i know you guys have writers and all that stuff but can you kind of talk a little bit about how you're doing that process and the creative process with that it's a little challenging because a lot of times you know they are academics and they have phds and they've written you know volumes of books and so papers so you know, they kind of come at it, but that isn't the same kind of writing as what we do. You know, we are writing, they write for the eye and we are writing for the ear and, and we have a lot less time to hook their people's attention than someone who might, you know, read a piece of nonfiction that's a thousand pages or something. So that's kind of, I think the initial challenge is, especially if we now have relationships in the history space with people who we've been through, you know, Mount Vernon, we've done eight projects for them, you know, American Battlefield Trust, we've done 85 projects with them. So, you know, we all know how to operate, but new clients, it can be tricky sometimes. You know, we don't approach any of this thinking that we're the experts. I mean, we all been watching TV how long now? I mean, you know, so I think everybody kind of knows what works and what doesn't on television. So, so we always approach it collaboratively from that standpoint, but, and we all probably have the same vision in mind. We just feel like we can help them get there pretty efficiently, you know, through story graphs and stuff. So, so we rewrite a lot of stuff. Um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. You know, we're doing a project for Mount Vernon right now on religious tolerance, religious freedoms in the United States. And that script went through a few iterations. And then their guys finally kind of buttoned it down and said, don't change the script. And we're like, okay, <laughs> we'll do that. And, and how does it work? You know, but a lot of people watching, it just varies, you know. And then like this project we're doing for Curiosity Street, me and, and Brian and, and our producer, who's a contract producer, but he's a, he, used to, he was our commissioning guy at Nat Geo. Now he does development in the DC area. He wrote most of it. And so now we're waiting on feedback on that. But that's one we wrote from scratch because we were the nerds learning about the wide awake. You know? <laughs> so just varies, but I don't know, Ed, you got anything to add on that? They all vary, I think, the way they come to us. But, you know, a lot of it, I mean, we're at an interesting point in our business now where we don't work with just anybody. We know those clients that we've had success with. We know those clients that, you know, we just went out and shot something and you have to, you know, you have to make payroll, of course, and sometimes do things you don't like. But 
the majority of all of our new clients are all people that we sit and interview them and we'll tell them if we're the right company. And sometimes we've had to move on because it wasn't something that we believed in our hearts, whether it was politically or or whatever. And that's why when we look at the John Deere's of the world and the Phillips 66 and the, the trade unions who the trade unions are, you know, the types of people that we grew up with, they're hardworking people. And we don't think they've had a voice in America and everybody thinks they're all gangsters or whatever. When in reality, they're some of the best people in the world. I mean, these trade union people are hard workers. They work in some of the most dangerous industries in the world. And we like telling their story. I know I'll go back to one of our first, uh, when we first did our, our, our major film to get introduced to the Boilermakers, the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers. We produced a 20-minute film on the history when they started in 1880 as blacksmiths and working in very difficult situations. Shane and I had, had our first conference with him. It was down in Florida. Our big uh, moment came up on a, like on a Tuesday after the convention had started, and they wanted to show our big film. And Shane and I are very quiet because here we are surrounded by 300 people in a room that had never seen any of our work. And we're extremely proud of the world that they, they work in. And we sat there, and at the end of the, the film, there was dead silence. And we about had a heart attack. We thought we had missed, we had missed it. And all of a sudden, the group stood up and in unison started clapping. And I mean, it was unbelievable. Your heart just fluttered because we had touched their hearts. And it, it was so special. And it was funny because one of the major guys that had been there many years comes up to Shane at, at, at the end of this and walked up to him and he said, you know, if they wouldn't have liked it, you would have never heard anything. No, he said he comes out tatted out with a mohawk. These are big dudes, man. <laughs> Oilmakers, they're big. And he goes, hey, you the guy did that video? And I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, good job, buddy. Because if they wouldn't have liked it, you'd have heard crickets. <laughs> he was like, ah! no, that was about, that's right, Ed. It was a great moment, man. It yeah. It was such a moment in our lives. And I think, you know, when the guys, after, as the week of the convention went on and we started socializing with these people and they saw how passionate we are and what we do, it was, it's, it was the start of an amazing relationship. It continues this day. And we are, we, we have done so many films for him. CJ's been on a lot of the shoots. You know, we've done some amazing projects, everything from naval shipyards to, you know, we're getting ready to go into a nuclear plant here in the next, you know, when everything loosens up a little bit. But, you know, shipyards, we've done heavy industry watching men working at 20 below zero up in Alaska, and, you know, it's so rewarding to see the variety of work that they do, and every one of them is as passionate as the next. It's been incredible, you know, going on these wild trips. Yeah, check out the Boilermakers on their Vimeo page, and they're like the best mechanics and welders uh, in North America, and just really good tradesmen. And um, what they do is like you just can't just you know learn. It's a, they they have a great apprenticeship program, and and Ed and I are Boilermakers, so uh, as our uh, <laughs> members of our staff. Well, you oh, just nice. think about like the group of people like that, you know, hard laborers and things like that, that really they get overlooked and they're underappreciated. And you really, you know, they don't expect their story to really be told, but they still do the work regardless. 
them being able to see that portrayal of themselves in a positive light, you know, and have that recognition. I mean, that's got to be that's got to be pretty rewarding. And conversely, you meet guys that are like some of the best welders on the planet. And these guys make double what I make in six months and take the rest of the six months off and go fishing or whatever. I mean, (laughs) it's crazy how much money they make, you know. It's a good job. Yeah. Until I worked with you guys, I didn't know a lot about the union community. Then we started working with the Boilermakers so much. And they are resilient in the way that they are together as a family. They might have arguments and get, it's just like a real family. Something about that community that's really cool. This whole idea of, you know, validating not only to them, I think, telling their story, but also I remember, Ed, you telling me about, you know, some of the wives would come up to you and be like, I didn't have any idea, not only to them, but to the families and to their children. This is why dad's gone so much, or this is why dad's working so hard. And that's something that's priceless, I think, for a family to understand and to have documented what's going on, whether it's mom or dad, you know, to kind of sum things up a little bit. Like one of the things I think what you said, Shane, is just this attitude of gratefulness that is such a key to any job, especially in production. For new people getting into it, a good sign to know that you're doing the right thing is that your every day is filled with a sense of gratitude, a sense of gratefulness that you're there, that you're even, because the guys that are getting grumpy and the guys that are getting you know upset on set have lost a little bit of the sense of gratitude or just Like it could be anybody there, you know, it's an opportunity to be thankful for. And the more we retain that attitude of gratefulness, the better we'll be moving forward. That idea of you guys know what you're doing and you're bringing your professional sense to it. But that ultimately it's like you have to get their story right. You could make the coolest looking little like, hey, these are tough Boilermaker guys doing their thing. And it's like, but if they don't look at it and go, yeah, that's me. Like, that's it. Like he totally nailed it. And it's like, who the crap are these guys? This doesn't represent us at all. (laughs) And it doesn't work. You know, it's like being able to listen, I think, and finding, are we finding that authenticity like you were talking about before? So it's like reenactment guy's going to know instantly this wasn't done by somebody who knows what they're doing or wasn't listening. So even if it's something you guys jump into and we're like, hey, we don't know this part of the farming, but being attuned to go tell your story and then I'm going to use my skills to bring that out, I think is important where some people I think just want to jump in and be like, I got this idea. It doesn't feel like your company, but it's going to be really cool looking and it's going to have all this sweet stuff. And it's like, okay, but that doesn't feel like a, like what my farmers are going to look at or what a Boilermaker thing looks like. There's two things. One, they're paying for it. Yeah. Right. And two, they got to live with it. You know, I mean, we're not going to be we're going to be moved on to the next thing and doing it. But that needs to work and they need to be. And so I always take that approach. And and there are ways to compromise, you know, and and go about it. But I think Ed can talk about it, too. I mean, with the John Deere stuff, I mean, those families, Ed has this relationship and he's going back with his crew four or five times. So that first video needs to capture them and they need to have buy in. It's the same way with our projects. I mean, they need to have that <clears throat> buy-in and feel like they had a stamp. And there are plenty of ways to get their involvement. They, a, as you said, like on this last thing we did for the Boot Hill Museum in Dodge City, um, mm-hmm. they knew the content subject matter better than we did. I mean, we came in and delivered something that I think was great. And they love that, mm-hmm. by the way. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet, but it came yeah. together. So uh, I'll have to get that. But that's just part of it. I just think, you know, realizing that <clears throat> there's, you, you just can't go into something with your vision so 
pristine and has to be a certain way. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe Spielberg does that. Maybe, I don't know, some of these directors out there are doing that um, right now. I mean, I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, kind of, you can see that in motion if you watch that film. But, um, like, there could have been some concessions made. But, <laughs> you know, um, hmm. I don't know. I've never done anything that was exactly like we planned it. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you that. And that's because the client was, you know, usually involved or things change and you just got to be, yeah. be ready to do it. Conversely though, if you feel pretty adamant about something and you know why you just better have, you know, a litany of reasons why you want to stick with it and be able to articulate them without hurting someone's feelings and yeah. being thoughtful and stuff. So, so that's kind of important, but. I give more than I take in a lot of instances. I know that from a directing standpoint. With your guys' focus being on history and stuff like that, do you ever feel an obligation for like things that have been written in history books that maybe didn't go the way that they wrote them in history books to kind of tell the stories the way they actually happened? Oh, yeah. I mean, we just we approach history like we're um, like writing a thesis or a book, you know, that's footnoted. So we just check sources. And we did a documentary, Ed and I did, that one uh, on the Battle of Franklin that won an Emmy, aired Nashville Regional Emmy. And we pretty much had proof that the battle was basically the last hurrah for the Western Confederate Army. And that army was commanded by a guy named General Hood who'd lost an arm and a leg and was hopped up on laudanum all the time. And we basically made the stand that his reason to send his troops into a slaughter, which he did, October, November 64, was partially based on the fact that he was an addict. And that guy, if you go find that film on Amazon, his ancestor has like a five mile long thing just teeing off on us. But we felt strongly about it and there was support to do it. So, so yeah, I mean, it happens. And, you know, I will say that if you ever get the opportunity to travel with Wide Awake, you're going to eat the best food that you've ever had in your entire life. (laughs) I remember some of the top meals and that Kobe beef is one that sticks out a little bit. You guys remember that would have been in, I can't even remember where we were. Where were we? We were up in North Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Kobe beef is a thing to where, Mm. you know, they feed them beer and, or they massage them in beer or what do they do? They like feed it. They massage them and, and they bring it out. You know, it's just like these slices of beef and it's just uh, amazing. But we've had some really good food. <laughs> hey, Peter just uh, called. <laughs> oh, Peter, yeah. No, that place. Peter? Ah. <laughs> yeah. If you were to go back and just talk to a younger version, like before Shane gets rocking in the production world, before Ed, you're a dude like thinking about, you know, getting into this. Like, is there any advice that you'd give yourself from this point of view? Go ahead, Ed. This is a hard one. You got anything? Wow. I maybe have something. Go ahead. You know, I was a trained journalist, University of Kansas. Wanted to be an on-air person, anchor man. That was what I wanted to do. I did radio forever in college and got hooked on that and then kind of got into writing for the ear and wanted to do that. And then I kind of got around a lot of people that were wanting to get into TV. And I'm like, I don't know if this is my tribe, man. So I kind of went the production angle and really got into that. Taught myself how to shoot, edit, got into the techie side, was always into the tech. And I think at that point, if I had gotten more into story right then, I think that would be something I, I can't, I can't stress that enough. Really understanding three acts structure, really understanding inciting incidents, really understanding how to ratchet up tension on your characters, really understanding how to climax, you know, a scene or how to, you know, really understanding how to resolve things. And I really feel like I haven't gotten to know that for 
just now. I maybe had some innately, but I really wish I'd under, you know, understood that craft more from, you know, from the academic side of it, I guess, and really looked at it. So that'd be one thing I'd stress is like, no matter what you're doing, those are still just tools to tell a story. And, and I've told some pretty good stories, I think, but I really think I'd be farther along had I just done what I've been doing the last 10 years early in my career. How about you, Ed? Wow. I think over the years, you know, our passion has really grown. I, I think back when I first, I, I did not go to school to be in this industry. I was in a, I worked in another, I was an HR guy for eight, nine years. And I found out about film production. I traveled around after I'd had my first little career thing. I went to Australia. I traveled for close to a year, both in New Zealand, Australia, and all through the United States. And I came back and I was fortunate enough that I, I ended up getting a real estate license. I wanted to sell land, and I sold a piece of land to one of the owners at uh, Video Post at that time. And he and I became really close friends, and I didn't really know anything about the film industry until one day he invited me to a shoot. And I saw the, the camaraderie on the shoot and, and uh, the people that were working in it and the happiness that went on and the amount of physical work that was involved in it. And, you know, it wasn't until I ended up going to work there, I started at the very bottom of that company and ultimately became the senior vice president of the company. And I think it was because of my ability, and I think Chad mentioned it, was your ability to listen. And I think one of the, the most important things to do in life is the ability to listen and not listen, not do it in a way that is selective listening, but listen to all people no matter if they're the grip on the shoot or they're the person delivering the food. And, and I look at each person as an integral part of that shoot. And I think it wasn't until later that I realized the power of, you know, the teamwork and what Shane and I bring. Because Shane and I, you know, bring a lot of different skill sets to these shoots, but we both respect each other immensely. I couldn't be prouder to have a partner like Shane as intellect and his intelligence. And he sticks up for our team. You know, he says things that, you know, are a little more aggressive than I would, but he wants the answer. He wants to know. When we work together like that, it works really well. You know, we listen to clients, we listen to new employees, we try to make their lives and how they fit into this team better. And I'm 65 years old right now, and I, I seriously doubt if there's too many producers around that do the physical things that I do and, and be involved in these projects. But I've always been the person that wants to develop that kind of culture and let people be around us that will complement the team we have, much like you, CJ, being on shoots. I mean, you're, you're awesome. You've been incredible your personality, the clients love you. When I talk to Doug, where's, how's CJ doing? You know, they, they love you. We wonder if you can come out of retirement. I know. I I think everybody's going to have to make some money here pretty soon. There's a a price tag for everything. We're doing some car spots. We're doing some car spots tomorrow, bro. Oh, nice. Nice. (laughs) You know what? We've never been too good not to do what it took to make it work. And if we had to work with cars, we did cars. If we had to do, you know, some things, we've done some wild things over the years, but you look at those as an opportunity. Hey, I get to make some cash. I'm going to go out and learn something. I'm going to meet some new people. And you never know. That, that may turn into a huge client down the road. Back but, in the yeah. 90s, I did some car spots where I was the on-camera talent. I was like ripping off like bad one. <laughs> I was uh, Norm the Chomper chomping up prices. And uh, yeah, you got to send me. I you know. Send I, me. I have to find that one. It was like... 
my dad, I don't know. My dad was the business manager at Dick Edwards Ford. I grew up in the car business. So that's, that's what I grew up doing. Detailing cars, moving cars, working in parts. So I grew up doing all that. But, and I've done some car spots, uh, you know, I'm just kidding, but uh, you know, I like them. So we yeah. do what, yeah, we do whatever, man. <laughs> you know, we did. I did it for my dad when he had his dealership too. I've had to play a proctologist in a medical video. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I, had to, I had to drive a, uh, a huge John Deere tractor that had a farm, young farm hand that was going to drive this tractor. And he freaked out when he saw all the camera gear. And so the client looks over at me and goes, he's not going to do it. We got it. We've got the equipment because Ed jumped in there. So here's Ed and I driving down the road $1.3 million with a tractor. Like, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm shooting. <laughs> but, you know, By ourselves. You do, you do whatever you got to do. Be the, the actor in the back or, you know, yeah. you just never know where, how these things are going to develop on set. And I think everybody being flexible and, even our staff at first, it was hard to put the funny hats on. Well, these clothes stink, you know. And but now that they've gotten into it and they see how we enjoy all this, they're yeah. just as eager and it's part of the process, you know, to make the best product we can for our clients. Yeah, back in the day, we we had so little budget that we'd be like rolling and we'd all have the stuff on and jump out <laughs> and act. Cut, did we get it? I don't know. Playback. Okay, yeah, that looks pretty good. Or we'd have like some farmer off in the camera and I whip button, yeah. the red button, click. <laughs> yeah, it was whatever. Uh, did they have a 1980 Chevy pickup in the Civil War? Uh, oh, yeah. I need to reshoot that. He's driving by in the distance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, stuff like that was always crazy. To kind of sum things up a little bit, like one of the things I think what you said, Shane, is just this attitude of gratefulness that is such a key to any job, especially in production. For new people getting into it, a good sign to know that you're doing the right thing is that every day is filled with a sense of gratitude, a sense of gratefulness that you're there, that you're even, because the guys that are getting grumpy and the guys that are getting upset on set have lost a little bit of the sense of gratitude or just, it could be anybody there, you know, it's an opportunity to be thankful for. And the more we retain that attitude of gratefulness, the better we'll be moving forward. So where can people go to find out more about Wide Awake and what you guys are up to? I go to wideawakefilms.com. That's a good spot. And then uh, you can find us on Facebook. We're pretty aggressive there. LinkedIn. Right now we're doing a lot of social media, but if you see a lot of social media out of us after the dust settles, it probably means that uh, we have a lot of time on our hands. Because a lot of our production people, <laughs> we run that. And uh, But yeah, we're posting a lot of stuff and we're trying to put a lot of behind the scenes stuff up right now. And we'll keep everyone in tune on our Wide Awake show that we're doing about the the wide awake political movement. I don't know anywhere else. Ed? No, I think that's good. <laughs> I know we're at the end of our time here and these are kind of deep questions. Would you rather be covered in fur or covered in scales? Fur? Wow. Any, any particular reason? <laughs> well, I'm kind of covered in it a little bit here. And I know what it feels like. I've never been in covered in scales. So. And why do you keep uh, making me get rid of mine, Shane? I don't know. Oh, no, Chad. Just, and that is true. Do that it's been three it's like times. a requirement to work to work for the wide awake because I, I always have to go, uh, am I shaving well, for this one? <laughs> and you always have, yep. it's so weird. I don't know why. Because normally we would require a beard, except in yeah. your instance. <laughs> well, and I also saw Game of Thrones and I couldn't be covered in scales, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm a big Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. How about you, Ed? I'm probably a fur guy as well. Probably, yeah. yeah. Is this like some psychological profile when you're done? Yeah. <laughs> Likely to be a serial killer. Um, These are a bunch of furries. Check, check, yeah. check. Okay, here's, a la- here's, a la- here's another one. Would you rather have a photographic memory or a heightened senses? Heightened senses. I already flush enough information in and out of my brain all the time. So <laughs> yeah. sometimes I wish I had a photographic memory. I noticed as you, you sometimes you people ask you, you know, you go back and you think about all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shoots that we've been on. And sometimes you don't, uh, you aren't refreshed till so you go back and look at some old photographs, and it just always brings a smile to my face. Uh, Sometimes I shake my head and I go, I can't believe we pulled that one off. I can't believe we did that one in a tornado. I can't believe that. <laughs> it's really remarkable. We've never been defeated to the point that one of us didn't lift the other one up, but we make it through it one way or the other. We just don't give up. It's been a great relationship, great business relationship. And, you know, love all the employees. I love Shane's family. His daughters are the closest thing I have to children. And, um, you know, he has a wonderful family around him. And I've been fortunate enough to share some of that time with them as well. So pretty satisfied. But we're going to keep doing it. We're not done yet. No, I feel the same way about it. You know, I mean, all of this couldn't happen without him. You know, I mean, it's just where I'm super weak. I'm not the best listener. I'm not the best empathetic guy. I don't, you know, I'm thinking about the getting the next shot and not the farmer who's got to get some cattle into here. But, you know, but that's why we work well together. Yeah. He's like, Shane, stay away from this guy. I'll talk to him. And uh, <laughs> I deal with what I do. And, you know, it's been great. But no, I mean, it couldn't happen, man. I mean, that's why Ed and I are 50-50 partners in Wide Awake. It, Wide Awake wouldn't be what it is without both of us. And, you know, and Ed's just, uh, I think his communication skills are like superior. I mean, I, I've never seen somebody who can make somebody feel so at ease and it's just a big part of what we do. And um, so. How about you, Davis? I think I would want heightened senses just because of, I don't know. Well, especially for being a sound person, could you imagine you'd just be sitting there with a the boom going like, hold on. Yeah. Every time. It's like, I can't hear it. Or it would just drive you yeah, nuts. It's like, yeah, oh, sorry, guys, there's exactly. a couple of ants. There's a couple <laughs> of ants walking by. Hold uh, for ants. <laughs> no, I think heightened senses would be, like, more helpful as far as, like, just having, but, like, a photographic memory would be better in longevity of life of, like, what you can remember and all the moments you can remember. I would enjoy that more. Chad? Kind of feeling the same way. I think, I think I'd go with heightened senses. I'm going to go with that one. Having that ability and stuff like that. As long as it wasn't something where it's, like, it's overwhelming all the time. I think that would mm-hmm. be the the caveat. <laughs> yeah. If it was like I, everything's so high that it's just like you're it's like too much information. But if it was something where it's like you can hone hone it in or whatever, like I, dial back smell. Yeah. Especially <laughs> yeah, especially when you're in the trenches with uh, sweaty dudes. Like you definitely want but, in very, very, all, very all old the heightened senses. <laughs> I would have to go with senses too, just because I feel like there's some stuff I don't want to see again. Uh, I'm like, I'm glad I can't quite see that full picture. Um, so anyways, this is our last last one. Um, is there a book that you could recommend us? Um, and usually we ask for two books, so like one that's not film-related that you uh, really like, and then one that maybe you have been um, reading that kind of helped you with your career in uh, film. 
I think the film book that is kind of the one I closely identify with and still adhere to it to this day is Rodriguez's book, Rebel Without a Without a Crew. You know, his whole, yeah. like, I'm going to get on the skateboard with the camera on my shoulder and <laughs> get this dolly shot. And I'm like, yeah. And that Ed and I know that where we've just, you know, now they call that Hollywooding it or whatever. But yeah. um, I like that book. I think it's good. All of McKee's stuff, I highly recommend. So it's good. I also am a big self-help junkie. So I read all that stuff. And I, I really liked all the seven habits books and I think they're good. And um, so there's that kind of thing. Do you guys have a trying to get the Hollywooding the shot? Is there one that's kind of like the craziest Man. or just really interesting? Like where we just had to kind of get something done. <laughs> Is there anything like one. that? You got but one you- CJ? <laughs> When we were in Southeast Missouri and we had to get that shot of the tractor and it was super dusty out there. Remember that, Ed? And oh, Michael's yeah. hanging out the window holding the mini or Alexa uh, <laughs> out the Amira. window. Amira, sorry. Uh, and uh, just we're getting pounded with dirt. And like, I'm like dude, we're going to be cleaning this stuff forever. We had to send the camera in after that, but... <laughs> They're like, hey, it's seventy thousand dollars. Get the goddamn shot. We'll get yeah. this. <laughs> Ed, do you got any books? You know, it's funny. I'm just sitting here. Here's what I'm reading now. A writer from the uh, New York Times, and it's basically talking about if you lived here, you'd be home by now. He lives in Washington D.C. He and his wife. They gave up their careers and moved to Western Minnesota, a bright in the same county that my mo- mother was born in. I wanted to see what his feelings were about being in the thick of things, living in a city like D.C. and what the transition was like in his life. I'm not finished with it yet, but it's been real challenging for this man. But I think it gives him the ability to kind of look back at his life and what's meant more to him, family time, community time, what it's really like to live in a small community. And I he gave up a very lucrative career. I think what he's finding is what a lot of us find as we get older in life is that don't forget the things that are important to you in your life. You know, don't get so caught up in your career that you forget about the family time and the friends and why you work. Why you work is to, you know, enjoy life. And I think that, you know, it's important that we all remember that and don't, you know, move to L.A. or New York just because it's the only place to be to be in our industry. You can live anywhere, and especially with today's technology. And I think that's pretty rewarding to the youth of America that they can operate and live in a in a great city like Kansas City. I'm, you know, I've been all shot in all fifty states. Shane and I both have, and traveled the world. And you know, what's important, I think, is that have a balanced life. And I think that in any career you have, and especially the film industry, is pretty difficult because in the old days it was always on the coast or the big cities. But there's some great content being uh, produced right here in our backyard. I think we just need to enjoy the walk and enjoy what, what tools we have in today in our industry. And don't forget to enjoy your personal life. That's awesome. Yep. Thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you guys both as buddies in the career, but also as just friends. You know, we've had some good times. I really appreciate you guys coming on. Well, there could be more if you'd come back and work for us again. (laughs) Let us know when you want to stand again. Yeah, right. I I don't know if I even can anymore. It's really... He he goes to sleep and wakes up in that chair, so... Yeah. 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 You think he could do this anymore? There's no way. He's never lifted his hands this high in eight months. Uh
<laughs> you know, I don't really miss that part of it for some yeah. reason. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> the holding things. Above, like, you know, that's the international torture pose. Yeah. A lot of like is to hold your stuff above your head or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'm like, man, if I ever got like caught in one of those or if I ever got put in isolation, you know, I feel like I would be, you know, pretty good. Except <laughs> I guess the difference is nobody's locked me in. So, um, well, mm-hmm. wait, the government is doing it right now. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, thanks yeah, guys. Thank you guys. Yeah. Yep. Hey, thanks uh, for the opportunity, guys. Thanks for guys. Yep. Good to see you guys. Or should I say lads? Thank you, lads. <laughs> thank you, boys. <laughs> thanks, guys. Right, we'll guys. <laughs> As always, please check out the show notes for links to our guest work. The Creator Burn Podcast is a production of C2D2 Films and Follow Happy Productions, written and produced by Chad Crenshaw, Davis DeRock, and CJ Drummiller. Original music by CJ Drummiller and Joseph Adam Gray.